Exodus 34. As we go to get into the word, let's give the Lord our concerns of the day. I'm sure all of us have come with different concerns that are on our hearts and to cast our cares upon him. So let's pray together. Father, we do thank you that you're in the room, that your presence is with us, that you, Jesus, are Emmanuel, God with us. And we give to you those cares, those concerns, those weights, and we put them into your hand. And Father, we don't want this just to be another Bible study that goes in one ear and out another. But we do desire that our hearts uh, would be that fertile soil where the seed of your word could be planted and bear much fruit. So God, we love you, we thank you, we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. So where are we in the story? God has delivered the children of Israel out of bondage, out of slavery. Now they're traveling through the wilderness. Moses goes up to the mountain to hear from God, to be upon the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. God is giving to him the Ten Commandments, engraving it in stone with his finger. However, the children of Israel are up to a whole nother plan, and that is to go to Aaron and say, would you make us a golden calf that we could worship? Aaron does and says, it's this calf, it's this golden calf that's delivered you out of Egypt. God says to Moses, you better get back down to the children of Israel. And Moses breaks the law. He breaks these tablets symbolizing that the law has been broken. The law was broken even before it was given. God says to Moses, I'm gonna judge the children of Israel. They're gonna die here in the wilderness. I'm going to raise up a group of people after you, after Moses. They would have been the Mosesites. No more Israelites, but Mosesites. Moses intercedes with God. He pleads before the Lord. And in this conversation of pleading with God, he asks to see God's glory. He says, would you show me your glory and would your presence be with us? If your presence isn't with us, then I don't want to move forward. Chapter 34 is God honoring the request of Moses. God answering this quest that God would show Moses his glory. For us, I think it's a great prayer as well. We think about all of the things that we ask of God, but have we asked God that he would show us his glory? And in chapter 34, it's a wonderful description of God's glory in his character and in his nature. Verse 1, and the Lord said to Moses, cut two tablets of stone like the first ones, and I will write on these tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. So be ready in the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself to me there on the top of the mountain. And no man shall come up with you and let no man be seen throughout all the mountain. Let neither flocks nor herds feed before that mountain. God is ready to give the children of Israel a second chance. This is God responding to Moses' prayer by the Lord saying, come back up to Mount Sinai and I'm going to give you the Ten Commandments a second time. They're going to be cut in stone the second time. Is God's grace and God's willingness to give a second chance. Aren't you thankful that God's a God of the second chance? And not only 
the second chance, but the third and the fourth and the fifth, God is willing to extend that grace to us. In verse 4, so he cut two tablets of stone like the first one. Then Moses rose early in the morning and went up Mount Sinai as the Lord commanded him. And he took in his hand the two tablets of stone. As he's coming up and he's bringing these two tablets of stone, Moses is responding to God's command, God's willingness to put the commands once again in the stones. But is it God's ultimate desire that his commands would be written upon stones? Is that the ultimate revelation of the Lord? If you're taking notes, write this down, that God wants to write on hearts, not stones. God wants to write on hearts, not stones. Because the problem with the commands being on the stones is they're external. And God desires for his commands to be internal upon our hearts. You may think of some requirements that are externally motivated, and then when that shifts and it becomes an internal motivation. Maybe at times in your life where you're being required to study, you're going through the motions, studying in order just to pass the test, and then maybe a particular time in your life where your desire to learn gets turned on. You want to study, you want to learn, you want to grow. It's the difference between outward motivation and inward motivation. And when God promised the new covenant, he promised that he would write his law upon our hearts. I'll read to you out of Jeremiah. It says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, Though I was a husband to them, says the Lord, but this is the covenant that I make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. God says, I will write it upon their hearts. One of the things that I really enjoy is seeing people come to know Christ as their Savior. And many times in that moment or instance that they pray and trust Christ for salvation, it's amazing what God will put on their hearts. Down here in the front, when we have the privilege of praying with people as they receive Christ as their Savior, I've had people pray and then say, oh, I need to go home tonight and tell this person about Christ. How did they know that? They hadn't even had the opportunity to be in a new believers class. It was the Holy Spirit writing his desire, his law upon their hearts. I've had people come to church where they've had everything planned out after church to go out and party, normally at the Saturday night service. I'll I'll go do the church thing, and then I'm going to go do the bar scene and party and hit the clubs, get saved, and after they pray to receive Christ their Savior, they're like, I can't follow through with my plans this evening. I had no idea what their plans were, right? The Holy Spirit knew what their plans were and wrote his law upon their hearts. When God really got a hold of my life when I was 14, I woke up the next morning, I wanted to read the Bible. That desire had never been there before in my life. That was the Holy Spirit writing God's law upon my heart. He had gotten a hold of my heart. 
So the old covenant, twice now, we see the law in tablets of stone. Not effective. External. Broken before they were even given. But when you get saved, the Spirit of God lives inside of you, and the Spirit of God leads you, guides you, directs you. Even for us as believers, as we've walked in the Lord for a while, it's still true of God working His law in us, His desires in us, through writing those upon the heart. God's always desired that. So here's a good question for us this evening. Is our heart open for God to write on? Is our heart open to where God would put his law upon our hearts, his desire upon our hearts? We go on into verse 5. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Remember, Moses had asked, God, would you show me your glory? God said, yes, I'll show you my glory, but you can only see my backside. I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock and then pass before you. So as God is passing before Moses, he's declaring the name of the Lord. Whenever we see this in scripture, the name of the Lord, it's God's character and his nature. It's who he is. So God is declaring who he is to Moses, and the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, here it is, the Lord, the Lord God. We're going to slow down here and really take this in because it's so important of who God is, his character, his nature, and his glory. God begins with the phrase Yahweh, the Lord. Lord means Yahweh. It's the most common name for God throughout the Old Testament, and Lord, Yahweh, means all-powerful one, all-sufficient one. It's the glory and the majesty of God that he is beyond words, beyond comprehension. He is Yahweh. So the Lord, the Lord God. Now the Lord, Yahweh, gets defined. And the first is merciful, merciful. Some translations translate this as compassionate. The technical definition of mercy is not giving the judgment that someone deserves, but the idea of this mercy is compassion. The idea of this mercy is everlasting love. So it's not simply God withholding judgment, but God having compassion and God having steadfast love. All of these attributes of who God is, we see revealed in Christ. Christ is the word become flesh. Jesus allows us to see these attributes crystal clear. So how do we see Jesus as compassionate? Well, remember in Mark chapter 1, here comes a man who had leprosy. And he's begging and he's pleading with Christ that Jesus would heal his leprosy. Being a leper, you would be an outcast. You're unclean. You couldn't be around your family couldn't be in worship amongst the community of God. No cure for leprosy. And he's crying out to Jesus, asking that Jesus would heal him. And it says there that Jesus had compassion upon the leper. Jesus had mercy upon the leper. And he extended his hand and he touched the leper. Notice that he touched the leper before the leper was cleansed. How long had it been since this leper had felt human touch? I remember years ago, I was visiting a young man who was in prison, and he was facing 
a very long sentence, and we would talk between the glass. And one day, after many visits, he lifted his hand and he placed his hand on the glass. And he wanted me on the other side to place my hand on the glass. And what he was longing for was human touch. Being in prison, he didn't have that. There's been many studies to show the damage that's done in the life of a child when they don't have affection at a young age, when they don't have human touch in orphanages where infants are stuck in cribs and no one holds them and embraces them. All of us would begin to suffer without human touch. It's the way that God's made us to be relational with each other. This leper's not experiencing this, and I bet it felt so good for Jesus to touch him. This compassion being displayed and and touching him. Then Christ said, I am willing, and cleansed him of his leprosy. Guys, we're the leper, and Jesus has compassion towards us. There's a part of us that's sinful that we don't want anyone else to see that separates us from others and it's destroying us, but yet Christ in his compassion is willing to touch that very part of us that's so destroyed by sin. He's merciful in this way. Jesus looks out at the multitudes, having taught them for several days and they're hungry. He has compassion upon the multitude and ask the disciples, where are we going to get food to feed this multitude? The disciples respond, no way, this, this is way more than the money that we have, than the resources that we have. And Jesus takes five loaves and two fish, and he feeds the multitude. Why? Because he had compassion upon them. This is who Christ is. This is who, who God is. Is this who you believe God to be? And this is a second thing to write down as we consider this and we go through this list is God wants us to believe his testimony about himself. God wants us to believe his testimony about himself. As we go through this list, it's easy to go, I believe that this is who God is and God is compassionate towards others, but he's not compassionate towards me, all right? Deep down, I'm not sure that God is compassionate in my life. You may believe God to be more of, why don't you get your act together? Hey, you've known the scriptures for a long time. You should get get past this. And you look at God more as a tough taskmaster than a, a compassionate father. And what we see in Jesus is that he is compassionate, revealing the character of the father, revealing the name of God. So God is compassionate, he's, he's merciful, and gracious, he's gracious. As I was looking up this Hebrew word that's translated into the English word gracious, this Hebrew word is only used of God in the Old Testament. The attribute of grace is God's alone. Now, are there times that we're gracious? Yes. Are there times that we give unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor? Yes. But in such a limited form that our graciousness cannot even begin to compare to God's grace. Amen? So who God is, is that he is gracious. And how is this displayed in Jesus? 
If Jesus is the fulfillment of the attributes of the Father, if he's the express image of the Father, how does Jesus embody the grace of God? Well, it's at the cross, isn't it? It's at the cross. He who knew no sin became sin for us. So in his grace, he took upon our sin, all of my sin, all of the sin of the world. Have you ever been accosted by sin in this world? Like, how could there be this mass shooting that took place? How could this person go in and shoot all of these people that he didn't even know? And here Jesus is completely righteous, and imagine him taking on all of the sin of the world and how that must have vexed his soul. He then paid the price for our sin, took the punishment for us upon the cross. We deserve judgment, but instead Christ takes our judgment, gives us grace and forgiveness to where we're justified, we're declared righteous by God. There couldn't be a fuller declaration of God's grace in our lives, but again, do we believe God at his testimony? Do we believe God to be gracious in our own lives? Maybe you're struggling with sin, sin of the past, sin of the present, struggling with grace, that God could be gracious to us and for us to see that this is the glory of God. The glory of God is his grace. No human can display the grace of God. And I hope you know to the depths of your soul of the grace of God that's resulted in the forgiveness of sin. And whether it's current struggles with sin or current trials, that we could commend ourselves to the grace of God and go, God, I know that you're gracious. I'm trusting you at your word and your testimony of yourself. The next attribute of God and his glory is that he's long-suffering. Long-suffering means slow to anger. God is slow to anger in regards to his children. What's amazing about this testimony of who God is is it's Old Testament. How many times have you heard, well, God is so judgmental in the Old Testament. Then we get into the New Testament, and it seems like a whole different God. Well, remember, the period of the law is God is showing us our need for grace. But even during this period, isn't God being long-suffering? Isn't God being gracious? Don't the Israelites deserve judgment, but instead, God is suffering long with them? So this is who God's character is throughout Scripture. I hope you know this, Genesis to Revelation. This list right here that we see is repeated in the Old Testament six times. Six different passages that describe this same character and nature of who God is. How was Jesus slow to anger? How did Jesus suffer long? Disciples were quite a group of knuckleheads, weren't they? God was patient with Peter. Peter rebuking the Lord. Jesus was talking of his suffering, going to the cross, and Peter began to rebuke the Lord. Those two things should not be in the same sentence. If he's the Lord, we don't rebuke him. But yet God suffered long with Peter and was patient with Peter and instructed Peter. The disciples are arguing amongst themselves who's going to be the greatest. As Jesus is marching towards the cross, they're arguing over who's the greatest. Who's the best disciple? 
you can imagine the discussion that's going on between the 12. Jesus in his long suffering, in him being slow to anger, and embodying this perfectly, the express image of the father, just goes and picks up a, a young child. And he says, guys, if you want to be great in my kingdom, be like this child. Have this faith of a child. That's some patient instruction on the behalf of Jesus, isn't it? And we can believe that Jesus was long-suffering with the disciples, but oftentimes we don't think that Jesus is long-suffering with us. We don't think that Jesus is patient with us, that he's slow to anger. We tend to more think, oh, I've done it this time, and God's going to get mad at me. He's, he's ready to pour out judgment. He's not ready to pour out grace. He's ready to pour out judgment. But God is long-suffering. Aren't you so thankful that God is long-suffering with us? That he's patient with us? That he endures with us? I can't imagine how many times in my own life the Lord's just going, oh, come on, Eric, you know? When are you going to get this one? But he's so kind and so patient and willing to instruct in such gentleness. We go on abounding in goodness and truth. Goodness is also translated as steadfast love. Truth is translated faithfulness. God is abounding in goodness. Church, this is probably the most fundamental and foundational understanding of God's glory is to know that you know that you know that he's good, that he abounds in goodness to the point where you can trust him, no matter what your circumstances are. Your circumstances might be saying this, but your faith, which is not based upon feelings, is anchored in the fact that God is good. God is good. He's steadfast in his love towards us. The Apostle Paul, many of you know it well, Romans chapter 8, the end of the chapter, he says, I am persuaded that nothing can separate me from the love of God. Now, Paul, in this point, is being autobiographical. He's sharing his heart. He's not necessarily preaching. He's sharing his own testimony about God's love, and he says, I am fully convinced that nothing can separate me from God's love. Are you fully convinced? Are you fully convinced that God has steadfast love towards you, that God is good? and that nothing can separate you from the love of God. And that's an important one for us to wrestle with, is do I have confidence in God's love towards me, in God's goodness towards me? How do we know that we know that God is good, especially when he allows pain in our lives? Because God does allow pain in our lives. We gaze upon the cross. In that same section of Romans 8, Paul says, God did not spare his own son for us. How will he not freely give us all good things? I know that God's got my best interest in mind because he gave his son for me. So if you're in a difficult spot in a place of doubting, which we all get to at, at different points in our lives, as you look at the cross and you go, if I was just looking at my circumstances, I may be confused if God is good. But if I look at the cross of Calvary, of Jesus dying for my sins, 
I know that he is good. Satan is going to try to attack what you believe about God. Satan came to Eve in the garden, and he is putting doubts in her heart and mind about the goodness of God. And there's times where Satan is going to be there to deceive us, to try to convince us that God is not good. But we need to go back to who we know God to be revealed through Scripture, who we know God to be that he died for our sins. He's good. He's abounding in goodness. He's, he's abounding in steadfast love, and he's abounding in truth. He's abounding in faithfulness. Truth also translated as faithfulness. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The woman at the well, Jesus speaks to her in grace and truth. She says, why don't you go get your husband? She says, I don't have a husband. Jesus, in grace and truth, responds and says, you've spoken well. You have four husbands, and the guy you're with is not your husband, Right? He called her out on what the real issue in her life was, and that was relationships. But he did it in the fullness of grace and truth. God in his love for us, God in his glory gives us his truth, and he speaks truth into our lives. Goes on to express who God is, the name of God, the glory of God, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sins, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. He has mercy towards us. He has steadfast love towards us, forgiving iniquity. How can he forgive iniquity when he doesn't clear the guilty? Because Christ took the penalty for us upon the cross. He took our guilt for us, and that's why God can forgive us. God alone brings forgiveness in our lives. I've heard so many believers over the years freak out with verses like verse 7 because they're saying, look, I've sinned, and so is that going to be a curse upon four generations after me? Or here I'm a believer, and my parents sinned, and they weren't believers, and am I living under the curse of my parents and the curse of my grandparents? And get all freaked out about this. Well, what do we know that God declares to us? That the old man has passed away and we're new creations in Christ. So the moment that you receive Christ as your Savior, you're not living under the consequences of the sin of your parents and your grandparents and your great-grandparents. Does their sin affect you? Does it hurt you? Yes, but you're not under some kind of spiritual curse because you're in Christ. Amen? Amen. So does that make sense? So if you're sitting here living under the weight of, well, this is what my dad did and this is what my mom did. No, this is written to, to the unbeliever. This is written to those that don't have Christ as their covering. This is what I want us to get here in verse 8. It says, so Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped God. As Moses gets a revelation of God's glory, he worships. Worship is going to be the overflow of understanding who God is, that he is long-suffering, that he is gracious, that he is truthful, that he has steadfast love towards us. It's naturally going to flow out of understanding 
who the Lord is, who the Lord is. What do you believe about God? And have you trusted his testimony? Today, we have birthday lunch here at the church. We have a birthday lunch once a quarter, so four, four times a, a year. And I get back to the church office about one o'clock, and Robert says, you missed birthday lunch. And I looked at him, I said, I didn't miss birthday lunch. It wasn't birthday lunch today. And he, Pastor Robert looks at me, and he's like, I'm pretty sure I was there, and you weren't there, right? <laughs> and I'd gotten my wires crossed, and it wasn't on my calendar, and I'd scheduled another lunch appointment, and I, I missed it. But in essence, what Robert was saying is, are you going to believe my testimony? I was there, and you weren't there. And I was looking at him like, no, I don't miss birthday lunches. It wasn't today, right? And sometimes with God, I think God's going, look, this is who I am. And we're like, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if that's who you are, right? That's who you say you are, but I don't know if that's true in my life. Maybe that's true in someone else's life. Maybe my spouse's life, because they have a heart for you, or maybe in my pastor's life, or no, in your life, do you believe that God is who he says he is? There may not be anything more insulting than to not take someone at their word. No, I don't believe you. I know, it wasn't birthday lunch, right? What God is really desiring is faith. He says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. How many times does it grieve God's heart where we go, no, you're not compassionate towards me? Actually, who you are is really stern. That, that, that's who you are. God's probably going, what? I've shown you throughout scripture. I've shown you through the testimony of my son. I'm compassionate towards you. So here's my encouragement to us tonight is accept God at his word. Accept God at his testimony. Meditate here on Ezekiel Exodus, excuse me, 34. Go, God, you're, you're gracious. You really are gracious towards me. You really are compassionate towards me. You really are long-suffering towards me. And as you accept that about the Lord and believe that about the Lord, I think you'll find yourself worshiping. I think you'll find yourself in that place of, of bowing down before the Lord. What I appreciate about Moses here in verse 8 is he expressed his worship. Worship is meant to be expressed. We may feel the worship in our heart, but to let it out, to sing to the Lord, to bow down before the Lord, to put him in his proper place, God, there's none like you. You alone are, are gracious in this manner. In verse 9, then he said, If I have now found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go among us, even though we are a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your inheritance. So God, if I found grace in your sight, would you travel with us, even though we're messed up, even though we're broken, even though we're flawed? We find God then renewing the covenant with the children of Israel. And he said, behold, I make a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as have not been done in all the earth, nor in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I'm driving out before you the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Hittite 
and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite and the Outisites, all of them. Verse 12, take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you're going, lest it be a snare in your midst. God says, take heed to yourself, take heed to your own worship. There's a tendency in life, and it's true in the things of God, where we take heed to everybody else, but we don't take heed to ourselves. At the end of our lives, at the end of the day, you're ultimately only responsible for your worship unto God. So God's message to each of the Israelites is make sure that you don't go into idolatry. Take heed that you don't give your love to one of these false gods. But you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, and cut down their wooden images. For you shall worship no other god. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and play the harlot with their gods and make sacrifice to their gods. And one of them invites you and you eat of his sacrifice and you take of his daughters for your sons and his daughters play the harlot with their gods and make your sons play the harlot with their gods. Third thing to write down is God's jealous for your love. God says that his name is jealous. He uses the analogy here of the harlot because when the children of Israel worship these false gods, spiritually they are unfaithful. Spiritually they are entering in with a harlot. Important to understand about God's jealousy is that God's not jealous of us. That makes no sense. But he is jealous for us. Out of the purest sense of love, A husband and wife have a a jealous love for each other. No husband and wife should have to share each other with someone else. There should be that fidelity, that commitment inside of marriage. And how much more so in our relationship with God, where he is jealous for our love. He wants to be first place in our lives. We get to choose what we love. Love is a choice that we get to make. Each and every day, we get to choose if we want to love the Lord. He first loved us, but are we going to choose to be able to love the Lord? And God is good about staying number one in our lives. Have you noticed? If we get off course, or we get distracted, or we start to put other things before the Lord, God will knock down that idol in our lives. Know that he's jealous for your love. And that can be discomforting, but it also can be extremely comforting to know that he loves us so much that he wants to be first place in our lives, that he's, he's jealous for, for our love. So if there's idols in our lives, let's deal with them. If there's things that have become more important than the Lord that we've begun to worship to say, I'm going to make the Lord the first in my life. Verse 17, you shall make no molded gods for yourselves. The feast of unleavened bread you shall keep. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you. And the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in the month of Abib you came out from Egypt. We won't spend too much time going into the feast tonight because we've already covered that in the, the book of Exodus But God here is saying, here's what not to do. Don't go for these idols. 
but here's what you need to do to make sure that you're worshiping me. And he goes through these feasts. So as we think of our relationship with the Lord, there's things not to do, but there's also things that God calls us to do, to love him, to worship him, to serve him. In verse 19, and all that open the womb are mine, and every male firstborn among your livestock, whether ox or sheep, for the firstborn of the donkey you shall redeem with the lamb. And if you will not redeem him, then you will break his neck. And the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. This is a reminder that God's saying, it all belongs to me. So you had to buy back the firstborn with a lamb, but it was to solidify in the hearts of the minds, it all belongs to the Lord. And that's why the tithe is so important, to, to give to the Lord as the Lord leads you, because as we give that 10% to the Lord, it reminds us it all belongs to the Lord. It's not just the 10%, it's all, it all belongs to him. Verse 21, six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest in plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. This is part of the worship. This is part of the protection from idolatry. It'd be hard to rest in harvest. It'd be hard to rest in plowing time. Every day's work is so valuable, but God is communicating, rest, trust me. And you shall observe the feast of weeks of the first fruits of the wheat harvest and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year, all your men shall appear before the Lord and the Lord God of Israel. I like this. God gives a command to the men, hey, you're to appear before me with all of the men of Israel and present yourselves to me. I think there's a great camaraderie in this. As the men are coming three times a year saying the most important thing is the Lord. Let's present ourselves before the Lord. And I'd encourage men and women is fellowship together. Men, you need other men sharpening you and challenging you and saying, hey, let's present ourselves to the Lord together. Ladies, you need other ladies to be in fellowship with them and present yourselves before the Lord. In verse 24, for I will cast out the nations before you and enlarge your borders. Neither will any man covet your land when you go to appear before the Lord your God three times in the, in the year. God's saying, as you're worshiping, I'm going to protect your land. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leaven, nor shall the sacrifice of the feast of the Passovers be left until morning. The first of the first fruits of your land you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Orthodox Judaism has taken this to extreme where they don't know the joy of a bacon cheeseburger, right? So over in Israel to this day, even if you're not a practicing Jew, most Jews will not mix dairy with meat. So if you go to a hotel, there's dairy in the morning for breakfast, but you won't find any dairy with the meats in, in the evening. They separate uh, the, tr the two. I think this is an extreme. You know, God's clear here of not boiling a young goat in its mother's milk, but it's taken to an extreme. So if you feel peace with the Lord to have a cheeseburger, I think you can do so. But if you don't have a peace with the Lord to have a cheeseburger, well, you're missing out. So. <laughs> Verse 27, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for according to the tenure of these words, I've made a covenant with you and with Israel. 
So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. So this is obviously supernatural. I don't think you can live without water for 40 days. But Moses was able to not eat or drink these 40 days and 40 nights, and God met him in in a supernatural way. Something to pray about and consider as the Lord might lead you is some prayer and fasting. I wouldn't recommend 40 days and 40 nights by by any means, but just to seek the Lord, it may be four hours, you know, maybe four days of seeking the Lord and saying, Lord, I'm going to set aside food to be able to be nourished in your word and nourished in, in prayer as the Lord puts upon your heart. In verse 29, the shining face of Moses. Now it was so when Moses came down from Mount Sinai and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand when he came down from the mountain and Moses didn't know the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. Verse 30, so when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near to him. Then Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, the children of Israel came near, and he gave them commandments, all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take the veil off until he came out, and he would come out and speak to the children of Israel wherever he had been commanded. And whenever the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone, and Moses would put the veil on his face again until he went in to speak with the Lord. So here's our last point tonight, and it's that God's glory is reflective. God's glory is reflective. As Moses spent time in God's presence, his face was shining. He had the mo glow, right? But yet his face would start to fade. The, the glow would start to fade. And so he would put the veil on his face so that others couldn't see the glow beginning to fade. And then when he would go back into God's presence, he would take the veil off. If you would turn me, with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and verse 12, Paul uses this to teach us of the glory of the new covenant and the work of the Spirit. So 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face, so that the children of Israel could not look steadfastly at the end of what was passing away. But their minds were blinded, for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. So Paul says for the nation of Israel that they have a veil when they read the Old Testament where they don't see Christ. But that veil is removed when someone comes to know Christ as their Savior. For many Jewish people, not all, you ask them about Christ being the Messiah, and there's a complete veil 
that has come over their face. When we go to Israel, we use a guide, and his name's Etai, and he's become a, a good friend. And Etai knows the scriptures. He knows the scriptures better than, than most. Most people that I, I've met, he teaches the scriptures daily. He believes in Christ, but he'll tell you that when it comes to the resurrection, he can't believe in, in the resurrection. And it's almost that there's a veil that has been placed over his, his eyes. And that's what Paul's speaking about here. That veil then remove, is removed in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. So that's us. We've turned to the Lord. The veil's been taken away. We see Christ in the scriptures. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord, there is li- liberty. If you study this chapter in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, is the law brings death. We see that in the ministry of Moses. But what Paul's point here is the Spirit brings life, that the Spirit brings freedom. Do you have a relationship with the Lord that's based on rules or the Spirit? Do you follow the leading of the Spirit? Do you walk in the Spirit? Because where the Spirit is, there's going to be freedom. But we all, with unveiled faces, so we don't have a veil, beholding as in a mirror the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Did you catch that? How are you transformed? By working harder, by doing better. You're transformed by beholding the glory of God. Church, this works. This absolutely works. This will change your life if you get your focus off of yourself and you get your focus on Jesus and you see the glory of God revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. You read the scriptures and you go, I'm the leper. You read the scriptures, I'm the hungry in the multitude. You read the scriptures and you go, yep, I am the thief next to Jesus on the cross and this is who Jesus is. And you just look at who Jesus is, the glory of God revealed through Scripture. And over time, you're going to notice that transformation has taken place in your life. With Moses, he didn't even know that his face was shining. A lot of times, that's the way that it is when God begins to transform your life. You don't even realize it. You're just so caught up with the Lord that you're not even aware that he has been transforming and changing your life. Unfortunately, behavior modification doesn't work. If we seek transformation by behavior modification, we're going to be extremely discouraged. I'm not going to get angry. I'm not going to get angry. I'm not going to get angry. I'm so angry at not getting angry, right? My focus, without even realizing it, is on anger. But when we put our focus on Jesus, the glory of God, and we're beholding the glory of God, then God's glory is reflected through our lives. I want to read verse 1 of chapter 4. It says, therefore, since we have this ministry. What's our ministry? Beholding the glory of God. That's what it is. We behold the glory of God, and as we behold the glory of God, then our lives are transformed. Our life becomes a mirror that reflects the glory of God, and God begins to do the work. So here's the question, and here's the opportunity Do we believe that God is who he says he is? As we celebrate communion tonight, do we believe that God towards us 
is gracious, that God towards us is compassionate, that God towards us is abounding in goodness and truth, and put our circumstances aside and sink ourselves in the goodness of God. And as we do, then let's worship. You probably didn't notice, but we changed the order of service just a little bit. We did less worship up front. Go ahead and look at your clocks. It's only 7.30. It's a small miracle. Normally, I'm not done screeching and preaching until 7.45. So we're going to do more worship here at the end. And here's what I want us to resist, is don't just run for the doors. If you're uncomfortable in worship, why? Why are you uncomfortable in worship? Why is it hard to stay and sing a few songs to the Lord? Where's the disconnect? And to look at who God is, displayed through communion, and then express your worship to God. Let's go there. We've got lots of room tonight. Maybe find a quiet place in the sanctuary and kneel before the Lord. If you feel led to raise your hands before, raise your hands before the Lord. If there's tears that come to your eyes, express them to the Lord. But as we encounter his glory, as we encounter his goodness that's displayed before us, then let's respond in worship. Let's take this extra time, wait upon the Lord, seek the Lord, and express our worship to him. Doesn't this make you excited about who God is? Like when, when you read God revealing himself and revealing his glory in this way, it just goes, man, God, you're so good. There's, there's none like you. So let's stand together and let's pray. Father, so many times our understanding of you is clouded, clouded by our own experience and our doubts and what other people say about you. But we choose to believe your testimony about yourself. God, would there be breakthroughs in our lives as we see your glory tonight? Would we believe who you say you are? I pray for those that are doubting your goodness and your faithfulness, your kindness, your compassion towards them, that you would reveal that afresh to them in in their lives. So Father, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.